Lord, we acknowledge that your word is truth. And when we consider the concept of love and relationships and sexuality, I pray that we would take and listen to you. That we would not make light of the heaviness of this subject in the world which we find ourselves. But we would respond in a way that brings glory to you and care to others. In this we pray. Amen. Well, normally I would get up and I would try to grab your attention with a story or something of that uh, light. But today I'm going to grab your attention by saying one thing. We're going to talk about sex. There you go. That worked. Now everybody's awake. Here's the deal. I'm going to try to move through a biblical theology of sexuality and I'm going to try to do it in a rather short amount of time. But I'm going to tell you that now because as we interact with the passage Jeanette just read, there is much to be related to today just as what Paul was writing to the church in Rome some nearly 2,000 years ago. King Solomon wrote that nothing is new under the sun. And that's very true for us when we look at this idea of sexuality and the way it's seeking to be redefined. It itself is not seeking to be redefined. But humanity is seeking to redefine things like marriage, like gender and equality and these things. And it's kind of like if you remember being a kid... Now, typically this is a a boy thing, but I've seen girls do it too. And you begin to play a game. And there, at some point during that game you're playing, you come to the part where you realize under the current rules of the game, you're going to lose. And so what does any good six-year-old boy do at that point in the game? He changes the rules. He said, oh wait, you forgot about this rule. And he adds something. And then the game changes. And everybody's like, but but, but we didn't know about that rule. Oh, but it was there. I just forgot to tell you. It's still a rule. (laughs) In the same way, culture continues, humans continue to try to look at God's word And instead of saying it's authoritative and it's as useful today as it was 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago we had the Torah, well, God didn't really mean that. So today I want us to consider whether that statement is true. I want us to consider what God's word has to say for us. I want us to consider whether we as a church family have begun to be like what Paul talks about in Rome, where although they know God's righteous decree, those who do such things deserve death, they not only to continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. I'm going to give you a message today that in general culture won't be popular. I'm going to, not so courageously because it's the Bible, I need no courage to tell you what God's word says. But from the beginning to the end, it is consistently true that immorality of the sexual nature is a heinous crime before God. 
What I am not going to do is I'm not going to get up here and tell you that we need to go around and try to target all those that are currently struggling with homosexuality. No, we're not looking for that. I'm not going to get up here and tell you that if you are struggling in the privacy of your own home with pornography, there is no hope for you. No, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, it's wrong. I'm not going to tell you that if your marriage is on the rocks and you show up at church acting like everything is okay and go home and try to avoid your wife or your husband at all costs, that there's no hope for you. I'm not going to tell you that if God hasn't given you a, a suitable mate, that it's okay for you to go have sex with whomever you want outside the bonds of marriage. But you see, these are messages that the church has begun to convey that, you know, maybe God didn't mean those things. What I am going to tell you is that there is hope, that there is a way through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, for God to restore broken relationships. That yes, homosexuality is a sin and so is lust and so is gluttony and so is lying and deceit. So what does the church respond to such things? Well, that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at the idea that goes all the way back to the beginning. If you opened up your Bibles, one of the first pages you would come to would be Genesis. And in the beginning, God. Okay? So if we take that, I'm making some assumptions today. The first being that you want to be here. Now, maybe you don't. And if that's you, that's okay. Just bear with me. Maybe there's something in here for you as well. But my first assumption is that if you've come to church, more than likely you have some belief in God. So I want to start at that point. And therefore we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 that says, In the beginning, God. And then the next part that comes is the essential word for our conversation the rest of today. In the beginning, God created. Okay? God made stuff. <laughs> he made this earth. He made this universe. He who is, knows the starry hosts and he calls them each by name made you and I. And he started with a guy in our English Bibles named Adam. Okay? Adam then was not sufficient on his own to do all that was required and expected of him to do. And so God looked and said, Adam needs a helper, or some translated help mate. Needs an equal that has a different role, is how it's understood there. Someone that will walk alongside him, complementing his skills with another skill set, and ultimately a great skill set of carrying children. And God gave us Eve. And when God created Adam and Eve... He gave us the gift of sex within the bounds of a covenant relationship before God. Now, that's a, that's a big statement that I just made. So let me try to simplify it. Before the fall, God walked along the earth with Adam and Eve. And they were naked. And they saw or had no shame. They were walking in joyful perfection and unity with God. And in that, 
the covenantal relationship of sexuality was before God because it was done the way he created it. Out of two become one flesh. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Thus, we were given the basic doctrine of marriage. That there was a point to it. That the point was to enjoy a wonderful, beautiful relationship with humanity, one with another, that was also meant to show us what it was like to have relationship with God. Marriage was essentially also a way for people to see what a holy life could look like. Now, don't misunderstand. You can be holy and not be married. That's not where we're going this morning. But the point is, God created sex, and he did it on purpose, and he made it great within the bounds of of marriage on purpose. But humanity fell. Because just a few verses after we read the inception of marriage and the inception of sexual joy that comes from having sex within the bounds of marriage comes the serpent looking to Eve because Adam was doing his own thing. And he said, did God really mean that? And ever since, Humanity has been asking that very question about all sorts of things. Did God really mean to be worshipped one and only? Yes, he did. And that's why ultimately the Tower of Babel fell. Because man sought to bring glory to man rather than God. Did God really mean that marriage, that sex is between a man and a woman within the bounds of marriage? Yes, he did. And when it began to be practiced in other ways outside of that, and you can read through from Genesis to Deuteronomy, there is an extensive list of ways people corrupted sexuality. I don't want us to get off track, so I'm not going to go through them all. But time and again, they sought to pervert God's word and do it their own way. One of the great illustrations of that is Sodom and Gomorrah where we're told that men cast aside their wives for relations with one another. And ultimately, that was one of the key reasons for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. God dealt harshly and continues to deal harshly with sexual sin. But here's the thing. We, humanity, continue to struggle with sexual sin of all sorts and all kinds. So Paul millennia later understands that this is a need. But what happens in churches, I got to tell you, not only in the midst of a week where I had strep throat and bronchitis, but I'm having to look at this and talk about this. Most of us naturally do not sit around and talk to each other about where we wrestle with purity or sexuality or how we as a church family are doing in these areas. These are topics that make most of us uncomfortable. And yet they're out in the open public forums being debated right now. And so if we Christ followers don't have a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, we've missed the mark. 
We haven't taken time to think of how do we respond to people struggling with these very things that Paul describes. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32. And I want to give you an overview. If you would like to dive into these subjects more deeply, I have an extensive list of resources that I would love to recommend to you. I can't cover all that ground in in the next 30 minutes, and I'm not going to attempt to. But at the heart of it, I want us to see some key features, and then I want us to make our way backward, starting with the results of what happens when we engage and accept as a church sexual immorality, what it does to us, and the results of that. Then I want us to back up further and consider the relevance of this teaching on marriage itself and on the Christian life itself. And then finally, at the end today, we're going to look at, well, how do we respond? Because I want to tell you up front, it is your, not your job to change someone. We often think that it is our job to change someone and force them into being what we want them to be. Only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. We can walk with those people. We can speak the truth with love, done with gentleness and compassion. And I will talk greatly about that. But I will not talk someone into it on my own. Purity has to come from poverty of spirit, from understanding what we talked about a couple weeks ago, that I am a broken vessel before God. I need Jesus. Start and end at that same point. And you'll begin to understand how we approach these issues that Paul brought us to. First, what happens when we miss God's plan for sexuality? Well, as you see at the beginning of Paul's writing here, we exchange the creator for creation. We idolize ourselves. We idolize pleasure. We idolize doing things our way for what we get out of it. Notice we keep saying, Statements like, what I want, what makes me happy. We make ourselves God. And in the sexual revolution that came, whether it came in the 60s or in the 70s AD, (laughs) it's always the same issue. When we elevate ourselves over our relationship with God, we have begun to worship creation rather than he who created it. The second thing that Paul teaches us that's so true in this text and in our lives is that as we begin to make idols of ourselves or of sexuality, something that God created, well, he's a loving parent. And if you push hard enough, sometimes we as parents allow our children to make bad decisions so they learn from them. Well, in this case, Paul teaches very clearly that the wrath of God, God's righteous judgment, is doled out. And in so doing, again, I know this isn't popular, but he allows us to live in the reality of our sin. And if you look around, even today, 
Why is it that in this wonderful, supposedly wonderful age of sexual revolution and sexual freedom and gender identity where, you know, we can truly be who we're made to be, we cease to study after study after study telling us how lonely people are. We see suicide rates at an all-time high. We see abuse of all sorts of nature growing, not lessening. Why is that? Because we're focused on our cravings. We're focused on what we want and we've missed what God has for us as a society. And he's allowed us to dig that hole and live in it. But the real picture that you see is our sexual perversion, our brokenness there, illustrates our spiritual emptiness. This is what David Platt has to say about that. In our hearts, we all have a sinful tendency to turn aside from God's ways to our wants. This tendency has an inevitable effect on our sexuality. When we spurn praising God in our hearts, we are prone to sexual impurity in our lives. That last part is key. When we spurn, when we give up praising God in our hearts, we are prone to sexual impurity in our lives. So what is all of this saying? What is the Apostle Paul saying? Well, culture continues to push God to the side, right? If that's even remotely true, if you agree with me, even on the basics of that point, then the subsequent outcome, the natural outcome, is that perversion of society continues and grows, It happens time again. Bad things happen when we engage in self-idolatry rather than what God created us for. And then we make allowances for that to grow further. Interestingly, did anybody notice in the newspapers or if you read the paper, great, or the news media that this week Playboy, of all things, announced that they no longer need to publish nude pictures of women uh, in print form anymore. And we as the church, our first thought might be, woohoo, finally, there's, you know, we're not going to see that in the newsstands anymore, right? No, you know why Hugh Hefner made that decision? He said, the market is saturated. I don't need to be in that market anymore. We've done a good job on the internet. I don't need to continue it in print. You realize the depth and brokenness of that statement? That pornography is so prevalent now, one of the foremost creators of it in the last hundred years says, I don't need to worry about it in print form anymore because we've got it in all these other forms. That should break our hearts. The fact that someone can go to their computer in the privacy of their own home and look for pictures of children and then justify it saying, that's how I'm made and that's the interests of my heart. And so it's okay to do that. Or the fact that prostitution in more places than not is legal 
but to get people involved in prostitution exists sexual slavery. Women, children, young boys are sold into slavery to meet some basic broken need. Can man live without God is the question. Well, we're trying. And societally speaking, we're not doing a very good job. The brokenness is what Paul refers to. Another guy, a New Zealand pastor, writes it like this. And he says, this is what's happened to sexuality from a cultural perspective. And Jonathan Thomas is his name. And if if you're interested in studying this more, the name of the book is Divine Sex. It's not an easy read, but it's a powerful one. And he says, here's what's happened. He says, first, step one that's happened is there's been a separation of sex from procreation. He says, this was enabled by a host of factors, procreation, birth, and all that goes with that, including the invention of contraception. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but this is what has made us redefine sexuality. Medically assisted conception and the modern priority given to sex as an expression of companionship rather than primarily for having children. God did not just give sex as a sign of union between man and woman. That is a primary reason, but it's not the only one. God also told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So if we separate procreation from that, we've already begun to redefine part of the point of sexuality. We've already begun to say, oops, that's not what God meant. I don't need that part. Okay? Then we've moved a step further. We've made sex uh, an object of, ex- of affection and companionship, which there is truth to. It is wonderful because God brings together what man cannot separate. But if we do that outside of the bounds of God, we've broken that down. Because the sex thing that ha- the se- the next thing that happens is the separation of sex from marriage. So what then happens is we we begin to look at things like living together to be seen as a sensible way to test what marriage might be like. Okay, uh, we we begin to look at that as an alternative lifestyle. We devalue marriage because it's not important. We're living together. We're already having sex. Therefore the marriage covenant and the promises that go with it are no longer significant, which is why now you don't necessarily have a husband or wife, you have a partner. It's an economic term. The only reason for marriage is economics. You get the tax break. So we have broken out of sex only between a husband and wife and the bounds of marriage that can, if God so wills it, produce offspring to sex is just about someone I might feel connected to and then you get further down and you find that that isn't always the case to sex can happen fine outside of marriage. And this is where you stop and say, Mike, you're spending a lot of time telling the church things they already know. Well, I would agree with you except for a couple of factors. A study was done by a secular group uh, a few years ago in a number of churches around uh, largely America and Canada. And that study showed that among Christian singles that went to what were defined as evangelical churches, 
80% were currently sexually active. What that means is getting involved in some type of sex before marriage. But yet, when I talk about these things, we say, well, that's for somebody else. We know all this. We know this to be true. Well, statistics lead me to say that, unfortunately, this may not be observed. That even we as Christ followers have begun to separate sex from marriage. That it doesn't just happen to someone else. It's happening within the church. Thomas goes on and he says, then it becomes the separation of sex from partnership. It becomes just an object for pleasure seeking and that it's a lone pursuit that just happens to involve another person. The terms one night stand come from this view of sex. Uh, among many other terms that are not appropriate to be spoken. But you get the idea. We've moved from separating procreation out. We've moved from separating marriage out. We've even moved from separating partnership out to now it's just about pleasure. And then what happens is we separate sex from another person. The attitude of step three, the removal of partnership, is not only about the disenchantment of sex, But the reasoning goes is, well, why include other people if sex is purely about self-gratification? The rise of pornography comes here. I don't need another person in this. Sex is ultimately about my pleasure, about my wants and my base desires. And so we have commodified it and we've said that we only do it only on our own. And then finally... And I believe this is where culture finds itself right now. And so I'll read this slowly because he says it better than I can. But he says, step five happens when we see the separation of sex from our own bodies. And this is critical because as you understand that we as Christ followers are the temple. Remember that? That's what we're taught, that we are a temple of God. And so if our bodies are God's, this truth has just awful, awful consequences for us. And this is what he said. This is the final form of fragmentation, which is the inevitable result of this journey of progressive disembedding of sexuality the way God intended. Our inherited gender was once seen as normative or normal for determining what sex we engaged in and with whom. In other words, gender determined who you had sex with. But it has become core, a core modern intuition that gender and sexuality are now things we choose. That our orientation is part of a deeper sexual personality that transcends our gender. Cut free from the moorings of divine design, we are no longer splintered and isolated into just one sexual pattern but given now an infinite array of sexualities. This stunning transformation has been accepted as self-evident within the modern moral paradigm. And yet such a perspective has been made possible only by the progressive stages of removing sex from the way it was intended. Today, we are faced with a choice of what will we do and how will we respond to a world 
that has broken sex away from how God intended it to be. And like I said from the beginning, I am not here to say that God hates you if you struggle with any of these broken forms of human sexuality. I am here to say that God calls you to a bigger life. He calls you to a pure life, a holy life, and a fuller life, the way he intended it, the way he has created us to be. And to do that, we have to look further. And we have to look at more unpopular topics. I'm going to cover as much unpopular content as I can in one message. That way, you know, next week we can come back and hopefully be more comfortable. No, that's not how it works. We're going to look at God's word. And if you flipped in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, you come to the idea of what God means marriage to look like. (laughs) We're going to have fun with this. You're all just wondering, what's he going to say next? Well, he's going to say this. Often what happens is you jump verse, right to verse 22 in Ephesians chapter 5. But I don't want to do that because we have to start here. I believe when Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, even though our Bibles have broken it down into two separate parts, uh, that this is one thought and it starts here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you say that Christ is Lord, we are going to yield to one another. Now, what does that word yield mean? Now, I I know um, on on the rules of the road, whether you're on a, a, a bike or whether you're on a car or a vehicle, yielding means usually that you slow down so that another person can enter into your space, right? Is that the basic understanding of yield? Now, I also understand that in Hong Kong, we are quite possibly the world's worst yielders. Have you seen taxis? They just jump over hoping the other man will move out of their way, right? That's why we see all the little accidents that we do because it's a battle of wills, of I will do my way and you will do your ways. Welcome to church, ladies and gentlemen where so often it is a battle of wills. It is my way or your way instead of reverence for Christ. Let's take this traffic illustration a little further. Are we really losing that much time by letting that guy in front of us into our lane? Is it really that inconvenient to put our foot on the big rectangular pedal? It's called the brake. So they can get in? No. Is it really that big of a deal to move over to the right side of the escalator in case someone needs to get by us? Come on now. Nobody's been frustrated with that in Hong Kong coming out of the MTR? It's what the right side is for if you're standing. The left side is for moving. But see, we get caught up in these things and we think about ourselves. And right off the bat, before Paul talks about what would have been seen as revolutionary teaching, he starts here. Church, go out of your way to serve and submit to one another. 
to yield to one another. In other words, you know, I might want something. This is what submission really means. Understand this very clearly. Submission means that while I might want something, there is something better for someone else. And out of love for them and love for Christ, I'm going to put aside my desires to seek to honor someone else and ultimately honor God. That is submission. Submission isn't me looking at my wife and say, woman, cook me dinner and make babies. That is not biblical submission. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand me. The man is to be the spiritual head of the home and lead by example. And we're about to get there. But right now, you have to understand this word, submit. Out of love for Christ and love for one another, I am more concerned about your good than my own. And that should be true of every single relationship we live in. So if someone asks me if I believe homosexuality is a sin, I can say yes to them. And I will say yes to them. And I will also say, but that doesn't change my relationship with you. I will still love you. I will still be your friend. And I will still walk with you. If someone comes up to me and says, I like cheating on my wife. And I think I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to look at that person and say, you know what? you know already that that's the wrong choice. You know already that's a bad example. But I'm going to be here for you if you need me. That's submission out of love. We don't defer from the truth. We don't change the rules and change the lanes. But we also don't sit and look at people and say, you stink at life. You failed. God hates you. There's another way. There's a better way. And it starts here. Look at what we learn. Loving Christ will lead us to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Loving Christ leads us to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Now, if someone comes up to me and says, I have a need to have sex with the same gender as myself, that's not what this means. That is not what submission here means. humanity's need is to be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. We must do whatever we can to help meet that need in whatever role God gives us to play. Okay? That's the needs we are meeting. For some, that might mean giving them a meal just so they get the chance to know that someone out there loves them. For some, it might mean mean listening to them be really honest about their struggles in any area of life. And it might be painful and it might be uncomfortable and it might be awkward. And praise God, we have an example of how to deal with that because Paul doesn't stop in verse 21. Here we go. You ready? If you come to me for premarital counseling or postmarital counseling, we will always look at Ephesians 5. And inevitably, the wives will always look at me and say, did God really mean this? So let me start with yes. But now you understand the, under, the meaning of submission. So let's see if we see what this passage really looks like for us as a husband and wife that complement each other for the glory of God. Not, ooh, I like your top but compliment in the we work together for the glory of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
So right off the bat, understand, if you don't have a right relationship with the Lord, your chances of being the wife God's called you to be, pretty small. Okay? So if you don't have that relationship, the rest of this probably doesn't matter. Without Christ, none of this works. I'm going to keep saying that until we get it. Without Christ, marriage doesn't work the way God intended it. Without Christ, purity doesn't happen. Without Christ, relationships one with another do not happen in the way God intended them. You push him out and you get the results. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Woohoo! Oh, I wish I could stop there. As Christ is the head of the church. By the way, my wife is on a train and she doesn't listen to the podcasts. <laughs> this would be a vastly different passage. No, it wouldn't. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, back to what we talked about earlier, are we redefining things based on the ways of the world or on the ways of Christ? Now, as the church submits to Christ, who we already know has our best interests at heart, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I'm not going to stop there. You've got to read the whole passage, or otherwise we get pretty wound up. Husbands, love your wives. I, I could stop there and spend a lot of sermons, but let's keep going largely because I'm a man and I don't always do this very well. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. This is what Christ did for the church, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, through himself, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But Christ presents the church holy and blameless. How did he do that? By giving himself up for his bride. That's us. And that is exciting. In the same way, here we go, husbands. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, if we go back to what Jonathan Thomas taught, that we have separated sexuality out of marriage, out of all the things that it was meant to be, and now we have this thing. If a husband is loving his own body without his wife, we've already broken the covenant. You understand that? That's what this text is teaching. We are instead to love our wives the way we love our bodies. We are to take care of our bodies. We are to honor our bodies as the temple of God. This is just what is found in the scriptures. We train, we maintain. Now, sometimes we don't exercise as much as we should or we eat things we shouldn't. But overall, we are caring for the bodies God has given us. After all, now you're going to argue with this point. No one ever hated their own body. Well, a lot of us might look in the mirror and say, I wish I looked different or could be different. But what he's saying here is, if you're alive, you're somehow figuring out a way to take care of your body, correct? Because you're still breathing. Therefore, you are getting food and water into your body. Otherwise, we have to go see the doctor and there's other issues. Just as Christ cares for the church, 
for we are members of his body for this reason. And boom, the consistency of scripture is found here again. For this reason, father and mother, uh, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Again, we're reminded of how God intended things because this is a direct quote from Genesis. From the beginning until now, the model hasn't changed. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. And there's been an excellent book written on that concept of a husband loving his wife and a wife respecting her husband. Read it. It's by Emerson Agrich, and it's a great one. But here's what we need to understand from this passage. And it starts with this. God designs husbands to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church in the way they relate to their wives. Okay, husbands, how are we doing? Are we reflecting Christ's love for us in how we love our wives? Because here's the gospel truth of this. If you walk into work tomorrow and you tell people you're a Christian and they see you treat your wife like dirt, then you've already lost your voice. Because our role as husbands and wives, you're not off the hook here. But our role as husbands is to care for and love our wives the way Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. He gave his very life for the children of God. And God designs wives to be a reflection of the church's love for Christ in the way they relate to their husbands. Both men and women need love. Both men and women need respect. But God, as he inspired Paul to write these words, husbands, love your wives Wives, respect your husbands, knew how he made us. That at our base, there is a need and a desire for men to be respected. We want that. God has made us different in that. It's it's a different feeling and a different way of looking at things. And wives want to be loved in a way that's not always understood by men. And if you wonder, do men really not understand women? Go into any bookstore and look at the vast majority of books that talk about understanding the opposite sex. But God longs for people to know that following him is a matter of glad submission to the Lord. In the same ways, marriage relationships are joyful submission to one another out of love for Christ. The best example I can give of this is the fact that I currently live in Hong Kong. You see, when the phone call first came of would I be interested in coming on staff of Alliance International Church after over a year and a half of, of trying and wondering why Melissa wasn't getting pregnant, God had blessed us and she was about three months pregnant when the phone call came with our first child. And we were almost at the point, we were told uh, if, if nothing happened in six more months, we needed to begin to look at other options for conception or adoption because it wasn't, we weren't sure it was possible. But then, boom, she's pregnant. 
and everything changes. And then, boom, I go off, get to see the picture of the first ultrasound, come back and get a phone call uh, saying, would you be interested in talking about moving to Hong Kong? What part of that sentence would be a yes to my wife? who's about to give birth to her first child, to want to move all the way across the world. We already lived halfway across America. That was far enough for her to live from mom and dad, but at least we could drive there in a day. You can't drive to Hong Kong in a day from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or from Minnesota, which is where we had currently lived. Not only that, but she had a best friend in Minnesota. She had a life that we loved, people that we still love, a church that was home, everything that was so great and we dreamt ministry could be and we were in it and we were loving it. And God invited us to consider moving to Hong Kong. And Melissa looked at me and she said, and I'll never forget it, and I'm pretty sure it's word for word, we will go where God calls us to. So if he's leading you there, he's leading us there. Let's see what he has to say. And so for the next few months, we had conversations. And at the seven-month mark, the church asked, would we come over and visit? So in four days, we visited Hong Kong with a seven-month pregnant wife. Don't do that. She was, uh, I know some of you might remember that, but she was sick and miserable the whole time. Not because of you. You were wonderful. But she was sick the whole time. And at the end of it, she looked at me and she said, you already know what we're supposed to do. Why pause before saying yes any longer? That, ladies and gentlemen, is submission to the husband as Christ loves the church. I was called to follow God into full-time ministry in Hong Kong at Alliance International Church. And my wife made sure she wasn't the obstacle in the path of following God's will for my life because it was his will for our lives, because we are one flesh. And we walk this road together. Just as it would have been disobedient for me to say no, thus bringing her down into a disobedient path, it, was, it would have been disobedient for her not to go where God was leading us. It's mutual submission out of love for Christ. She loved Jesus so much that she said, yeah, we got to go. And now it's the longest we've lived anywhere, and it is home. But see, God invites us into a place where a relationship is built on putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Where it means that we trust God with our sexuality and with our desires and wants. Now, I want to ask a couple questions and I want to answer them because here's the thing. And I know we're continuing on and we're almost done, I promise but we still will struggle with sinful tendencies for all have sinned and fallen short of the gospel or short of the glory of God. We get that. Therefore, you will still, even if you commit to living a holy life uh, of singlehood, if that's what God has called you to, or marriage, you will still be tempted to sin in sexually immoral ways. And we have to guard our hearts against those things. But in so doing... We also have to understand that God tells us we are not walking alone and that we are yielding together. And he gave us the church to walk with us through the struggle, through the temptation, and through the challenge. You know a statement that I've never heard 
someone come to me is I struggle with same-sex attraction because often in the church we're too afraid to admit that. But what if somebody being able to seek to speak those words would give them the freedom to consider what God might have for them? A lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was a a feminist scholar who delighted, didn't just disparage the Bible. She took pleasure in criticizing the Bible and all who believed it. She called it stupid, pointless, and menacing. That's what I thought of of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a shampoo commercial model. She described her life as a leftist lesbian professor in these words. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, and our Unitarian Universalist church, to name a few. Though the compassionate enga- through the compassionate engagement of a pastor who gently responded to a critical editorial she'd written in a local newspaper, she saw and heard the gospel. This pastor and his wife showed God's love to her. She started reading the Bible and wrestling with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view or did I just want to argue with him? One night she started praying and didn't stop until the morning. She writes, when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has all this been a case of mistaken identity. If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? This crisis of faith led her to what she describes as one ordinary day when she came to Christ. In this war of worldviews, Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a gentle love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that Jesus could conquer death. And if he could do that, he could right my world. That's a testimony of a person that one had someone within a church walk alongside them and lovingly show them the gospel. For her, it was an issue of redefining what it meant for God to define sexuality. For others, it means sacrificially helping husbands love their wives and wives love their, respect their husbands. For others, it means loving people even as they wrestle with whom they should enter into relationships with or even if at all. But the case is always the same, that the gospel transcends all of these problems and brings us back to a place of hope because we were all sinners in need of saving. And right now you may be wrestling with immorality of some kind. And to you I say there is hope, there is forgiveness, and there is freedom from that bondage. It's not always easy. Walking away from pornography is difficult. Treating your wife or husband the way Christ has treated you might require a tremendous amount of work that is not 
repeat it. But it doesn't give us the, exa- the excuse not to do it. I think of it like this. And this is where we finish. You see these words? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. This is kind of the great apologetic for what love is. And what's happened is we in the church often have heard the talk that in Greek there was three types of of words used for love. The first was, I'll use it because it's the easiest, phileo, uh, brotherly love, camaraderie, friendship, uh, unity, uh, just that, that sense of being together. So there was this phileo love. The second then was eros, the, the intimate sexual love that comes, uh, that should come between man and a woman, uh, that, that are joined in holy matrimony, if you want to use the whole phrase. And so there was this erotic love. And then the third was the love that is found in every part of this passage and throughout the scriptures. And it's called agape. Agape love is patient. Agape love is kind. And this basically breaks down the definition of agape love. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Any marriage, just underline and circle that one a lot. Because we're all going to be wrong. And then go ahead and practice saying, I was wrong. But love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. That pastor that came alongside Rosaria loved her enough to point her to the truth, but loved her enough to be patient with her as she wrestled with the dramatic life change that needed to come out of that. We as a church might know there are marriages among us that are in trouble. Will we love people enough to walk with them or will we just tell them they're wrong and they should fix it? Agape love teaches us that eros isn't the only kind of love. Right now, we seem to think that love defined as eros, sexual pleasure. That's it. Or maybe the only kind of love we are to seek is phileo. I just need somebody to understand me and it's not found with my wife or my husband, so I'm going to go find it elsewhere. And you do. And the bond of marriage is broken, even if it's just emotional intimacy. But agape love is love that is always, always bringing us back to the self-giving love of God who gave himself up for us, his people. And he invites us to do the same. He invites us to live with that kind of sacrifice. So how do we give relationship CPR to a world that is very drastically confused? I call it CPR because there's a C, there's a P, and there's an R. <laughs> and so I think it's pretty simple. First, instead of being people that condemn all the time, sadly Christians can be known for their condemnation, we are to show compassion. We are always to be prepared to give an answer for the reason that we have in Christ Jesus, but you know how we're supposed to do it? With gentleness and respect. We are to look into the lives of people with compassion because Jesus looked down at the mess we've made of ourselves and says, I love them. So no matter what that mess is of the loved one or the person that God has brought into your life, we can do nothing but be compassionate because they need it, because we needed it. We are called to give compassion. 
It doesn't mean we change the rules. We don't waver from the truth. But we allow the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we walk with them as he does. Second, oh, this is so hard in church because we're really good at talking about the weather. Get involved in people's lives. I have an accountability partner. Actually, I have a couple. And one of them from time to time will ask me the question, and I'm not going to answer it for you. That wouldn't be appropriate. But he'll ask me, how's your sex life? How's your thought life? And how's your purity? I trust him enough that I know he will ask me that question out of love to make sure I'm where I need to be. Will we do that one for another out of love for them? Will we walk with our friends and say, how's your marriage? How can I walk with you in that? How's your struggles? I know you've mentioned that this is hard for you. How can I walk with you in this time? You can't do that without taking the relational risk of loving people enough to ask really how they're doing. And that's more than how are you doing. That's actually getting specific. Maybe you look at your spouse and say, how can I make marriage better for you? They'll probably have some answers. (laughs) They will have answers, I promise. Will we listen? Imagine if every husband and wife go home today and say, how can I make marriage better for you? What might that do? If you're not married, look at the relationships around you. How can I make these relationships more pleasing to God? And then finally, redefine how we communicate love. The world defines love as bringing pleasure to ourself. And therefore, we've missed the point. You see, love is about bringing pleasure to God by honoring Him and enjoying Him for all eternity. If we let the world see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best and only way to live, His Holy Spirit will change their hearts according to His plans and His times. And we get to walk them through the mess, loving them each step of the way, loving them enough to let them see there's a better way. We can't do it the other way around. We have to let people see there's a better way. Our marriages, our relationships, our friendships have to show the world there is a better way to live. Just because culture says this doesn't make it true. God made us to love the life he's given us. But the best way to do that is through obedience to him. So let's give our relationships CPR through the grace of Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us, the church. Lord, these are heavy words and they're not to be taken lightly. But you've called us to purity And you've called us to hope that is found in you and freedom that is found in accepting your son as our Lord and Savior of all things. And so I ask that we, the church, would be light in this perverted world, that you would purify our hearts and that we would show compassion to others, that we would love people enough to ask the hard questions and that we would help them redefine what it means to live the life you've called us to live. Amen.